listening to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. Hello, everyone, and this week we have a returning guest, Dr. Joshua Fader, who is a child and family psychiatrist in Solana Beach, California, where he practices the DIR model. He is a DIR expert, he does lots of training. He has his hands in many different roles of the developmental approach, and he's also very much involved in advocacy with the DIR Coalition of California. Welcome back, Dr. Fader. Thanks so much for having me. It's always good to be here. Well, we always enjoy having you. And for the listeners, this is affectautism.com, where we will have a podcast and there will be a blog associated with it, where I will um, put links to everything that we discussed today and today's topic is about one component of the DIR model, as talked about in Engaging Autism by Dr. Stanley Greenspan and Dr. Serena Weeder. They talk about three components of the developmental individual differences relationship-based model, and that is the unstructured floor time that you often hear is recommended uh, six to eight 20-minute sessions a day for the youngsters when they first get their diagnosis, But they also discuss unstructured activities, which might be uh, more gross motor and sensory activities like kicking a soccer ball or doing some kind of fun activities. But they also talk about a third component, which is the structured component. And Dr. Fader, the reason why I contacted you is because I did a very nice podcast with Jake Greenspan um, a couple weeks ago about his new approach, Food Time. And he was talking a bit about structured components and how um, his father, Dr. Stanley Greenspan, was never opposed to boundary setting and certain types of developing skills in, in within the DIR model. And that was under the structured approach. And we didn't really get into that because that wasn't the topic. But I thought, boom, that's a topic that I do want to bring up because ABA is funded ev- almost everywhere. We're moving in a trend away from just having ABA as the only option, applied behavioral analysis, um, and we're moving towards more parent choice and family choice and a more developmental approach is, of course, what we advocate for at Affect Autism. And Dr. Fader has had the opportunity to work with a number of ABA practitioners as well as working in the developmental model, and he has some great information to talk about how these two different so conceptually uh, opposing um, views or concepts can be blended together and work together for families that are looking for that. So I will let you take it from there, Dr. Fader. Thanks so much, Daria. There is so much to talk about on this topic. Why don't we start with, um, I'll start with, with a little bit more about my history with ABA and DIR. When I was coming up as a uh, undergrad, actually, I, I got into this uh, business in 1979 as an undergrad. I was doing behavioral work with kids with um, autism who also had congenital rubella. So they were blind, they were deaf, and they had what was then called autism. It's probably a little bit different from some of the more general, we don't know what causes it, kind of autism we have now, but, but nevertheless, very similar kinds of difficulties and the methods that were being used with these kids were the early behavioral methods. It was before Lovas's papers from the early 1990s, but, um, but still during the time when all that was kind of being looked at. And so we would use some sign language with people. We would tell them, 
you know, um, good job, you know, stuff like that. Do you want to go to the toilet? Um, and kind of training them in these um, kinds of things and, um, and, and working with them uh, to, to do tasks uh, uh, so that they might be more functional. Um, and, and those had to do with eating. They had to do with pre-vocational skills, things like that. Later, I worked as a teacher for autistic adults. This is right before I started medical school. And again, it was, it was basically a discrete trial ABA program teaching people to do pre-vocational things like um, unwrap bars of soap that were badly wrapped so that they could be rewrapped by somebody else. And so these people were, were doing that. Um, and, uh, and then dealing with the behavioral problems that, that people had as well, like putting things up their noses is what I remember most. And aggression. The first day I was there, I lost, I lost the hair at the top back of my head. And as it turns out, I never grew back. Um, you know, maybe that, maybe that's just being bald now, but, um, anyway, so that was, you know, kind of back then as I came up through medical school and then internship residency and child psychiatry fellowship, behavioral methods were still king, right? So you had cognitive behavioral therapy for depression and anxiety and OCD, things like that. And then when you talked about developmental challenges, you would talk about uh, ABA type approaches. This is in the eighties and early nineties uh, for kids who had developmental challenges and, and 11 years into this um, uh, part of my life of knowing about and thinking about developmental challenges and autism. As most people know, I had my own kid in 1990 who by 92 um, had regressed and um, was diagnosed with autism and we put him in a behavioral program and um, he learned a lot in that program, but uh, people were telling me at the same time about this guy Greenspan, and he did different things. And so I read about it. Of course, you want to read everything about, um, you know, things that might help your child. And it didn't really uh, click for me until one day when uh, my son was playing with one of his favorite Thomas the Tank Engine toys. And um, my uh, daughter, who is a year old, this is a year into his diagnosis. My daughter was born the time he was diagnosed. Um, was crawling around and took one of his toys. And uh, this kid who had had a lot of difficulties and who wasn't really putting words together very well, put together a full sentence. He said, Mari go a mama. So Molly, go to mom. Um, and we were flabbergasted. And we realized it kind of all clicked that the fact that he cared about this, um, he wanted his toy back, um, he was able to really live the affect diathesis hypothesis, which is when you care about something, you're more able to put together your motor planning and your ideas so that you can get something done. And from there, then we actually went to DC, worked with Greenspan and Weeder with our son. And actually for a number of years, I, as a psychiatrist, wouldn't work with people with autism because I felt like there was too much, I, it was too personal to me. Um, and then eventually I ended up uh, going back to working um, and half my work now is in that uh, venue. But, you know, what I learned through those years, and remember those are the years of the early 90s when Lovas is publishing and ABA is becoming this massive um, enterprise um, now, many, many multi-billion dollar enterprises these days um, in uh, training people to train people uh, to look more uh, normal. Um, and as I'm seeing my son and then other people and how they're doing, I'm realizing that um, the things that you get out of a relationship-based approach become more functional, even if it's not so obvious at the beginning. And, and hence, uh, for a number of years, uh, many of my colleagues, Diane Cullinane, and um, Andrea uh, Davis and others 
um, have been advocating here in California for legislation to make sure that people have uh, access to um, all evidence-based practices. Obviously, we argue that DIR is an evidence-based practice. And within that, this is kind of getting to where Daria uh, asked me to come on, um, there is a research program started here at UCSD and SDSU, along with other stakeholders. Wait, those are big a- acronyms. University oh. of California, San Diego. And San Diego State University, um, along with another uh, many other partners, so parents and clinicians and, and, and other researchers, as well as funders, including Kaiser, um, the military, because uh, it's a big military town, um, some other insurers, I think you, United Behavioral Health was involved initially, and, um, and our San Diego Regional Center. So in California, we have these um, centers dotted around the state that are meant to be cradle-to-grave um, uh, places that um, watch over your children as even into adulthood um, and help organize services for them. And so they, they have a, a stake in all this, too, because they're paying a lot of money for, for treatment. And, and in our community, we had a bit of a, a battle going on between the behaviorists who wanted to train people to look normal and the developmentalists who said, let's play because play is good, <laughs> right? Um, and we were trying to figure out what would be for our community uh, in San Diego a, uh, an approach that would fit the community because we were getting about one new diagnosed child per day, um, usually a, a preschooler, um, if we were lucky, under three, um, but a lot of times they're a little bit older, and figuring out what are we supposed to do with them. And so as a community, we got together, we vetted a whole bunch of different early intervention type approaches, came to three of them to vet more closely. One of them was, um, uh, I, I, the one that was selected was Project Impact. But, um, but the other two, I'm, I'm blanking on at the moment. Um, if I remember them, I'll mention them. But Project Impact was first designed by um, Anna um, Dvorak and uh, Brooke Ingersoll. Uh, Brooke, a speech and language pathologist, I believe, who um, was uh, trained a bit in DIR floor time, didn't go the full length in terms of um, getting certified, but understood uh, – the developmental ideas pretty well and wanted to put them together with the behavioral ideas. And so she had uh, done that to a degree um, and uh, put out a book on that um, called uh, Teaching Social Communication to Children with Autism. And um, uh, we took that and we saw that it wasn't yet for the little kids. It was more for older kids. We also saw that it was very goal-oriented, like an ABA program would be. And what it did is it took ideas like follow the child's lead um, and kind of get to know the child, and then went into the goals that one might have for an ABA speech program, like the words, the prepositions, this, that, um, those sorts of things. So we looked at that, and um, we ended up uh, uh, doing a couple things. We added more robust, far more robust pieces on individual differences. We uh, brought in more nuance to some of these developmental ideas, such as um, one of them was to be animated, um, which is something that we often do in floor time when we're playing with kids. We increase 
our affect to try to really get the child's attention and engage them. So we're kind of the happy puppy and they're kind of engaging with us. But we, for instance, change that to adjust your animation because there are some kids who are freaked out by de-animated. So we wanted to just make sure that we're kind of taking into account the whole spectrum of... Pause for a minute because you mentioned uh, you took into account individual differences. Our listeners should probably know what that means, but just sure. in case, we'll say that uh, we'll look at the sensory profiles of the child. Some children are overstimulated by noise; they'll be covering their ears a lot. Um, other children, like my son, need to constantly move around, so sitting still at a table is not going to work for them. So, what can we do with them where we're moving around a bit to to give that input to the vestibular system that my son needs. Um, anything else you wanted to add to that? Yeah. So under sensory, you could be hyper or hyposensitive and it can make a difference whether it's you doing it or not. So we've got kids, for instance, who scream really loud, but if you make a noise, it freaks them out or um, they can come and touch you and hug you. But if you touch them, they freak out. So there's mixed profiles and there's all kinds of senses, right? Including your internal ones of proprioception and motion. Um, for motor tone, that's often an issue. So some people are really kind of floppy and it's a lot of work just to sit up. Some people are already kind of stiff um, and, and their ability to use their motor systems to have an idea, make a plan, figure out the steps to the plan, execute those steps, and then, of course, adapt it because nothing ever unfolds the way you expect. There's that piece Visual spatial processing, so understanding the world around you from when you're a baby and it's just up close to when you're in a bassinet, you can follow your parent as they go across the room, to when you're crawling out and back and your parent is an anchor, to when you're playing chase and you've got, you know, you're in motion, maybe your parent's in motion, and, you know, you can kind of keep track like you might want to do on a soccer field later or something like that. At any of those points, you can kind of get stuck, and we're not going to talk in detail about all those, but also receptive and expressive communication. So receptive meaning being able to understand words, but also what the meaning of gestures and facial expressions are. And then also your capacity to utilize those same kinds of things, vocalizations, then words, gestures, and facial expressions. How often is it that we have somebody who we uh, think we're not sure what they're thinking or feeling because they're just kind of sitting there. Maybe they have low motor tone, poor motor planning, and, um, or they have challenges in auditory processing and maybe they're only hearing every third syllable and, and we're not sure. Right. And, but they may be upset and we don't know it until they really blow a gasket. So respective and expressive communication and then executive function, things like being able to pay attention and focus and concentrate um, and abstract thinking. So there's all these different areas that we think about for the child. Also for the caregiver, you know, for the parent or teacher or person who's working with them and, you know, working with those different individual differences. So all that's to say in Project Impact for Toddlers, I have the book for it, the parent book here that we came up with. It's a a beautiful book. It's basically a blended developmental behavioral approach um, that starts with um, uh, getting, you know, securing your relationship uh, with the child and then, uh, and then working on some of these more structured things, very much like Stanley was talking about, which is, um, you know, first you do the floor time, then you set the limits. He said that in playground politics really well. I don't know that he ever said it better. But if you look at the learning tree, another one of Stanley's books, it was about how do you get these things sorted out? How do you build the relationship? And then, then you can do the learning. So the, you, you, the trunk of the tree was your relationship, the functional, emotional, developmental levels being regulated, being connected to the other person, 
having some interactions back and forth, having a flow of interactions, having those uh, be used for problem solving in first a, um, a symbolic way and then a logical symbolic way and then abstract thinking. That's the trunk. The roots, he uh, said, were the individual differences that would sort of make that possible to be able to connect and do that. And then the leaves and the branches were all the things you could learn and do. Uh, it's a beautiful book, The Learning Tree. Um, so I guess he said it well there too. But but what this does is essentially the same thing. It just writes it for parents in a way that's really very accessible. You you can't really buy this book because it's a research manual, and I'm going to get to the punchline here in a second. This Project Impact for Toddlers was like gorgeous, and a lot of times people think about floor time as, well, you know, that's for little kids. You don't do it for older kids. We do this for, you know, all our interactions with everybody. Calm, connected you know, in a reasonable flow of interaction. But floor time has always been thought about that way when Project Impact for Toddlers was also built literally for the, for the toddlers. But then the best thing happened, right? These same principles got put into the new uh, set of books uh, for um, teaching social communication to children with autism and other developmental delays in the uh, parent manual and in the thicker uh, manual for... Uh, for practitioners, master's level practitioners get taught this stuff, right? So it's got all the detail. The amazing thing is that the research that's quoted in these books is partly some of our floor time research, Rick Solomon, Weeder and Greenspan, stuff like that. But so many people who've been working in this space that they call naturalistic developmental behavioral intervention, where essentially you've got a lot of people who kind of grew up doing ABA who recognize that you can't just be so rigid. It doesn't work for the kids. It doesn't work for the families. You've got to be doing parent-mediated kinds of work. And so they move to things like PRT from ABA, where you're giving kids choices. Pivotal um, and then response from, theory. The pivotal response uh, training, actually. Training. Pivotal okay. response training, which is um, uh, you know set up both for clinics, but also for schools now. And they've done some pretty good research. And you can see... Whereas we as developmentalists have been kind of doing this, well, me since the early 90s, Stan and Serena since, you know, longer before that, you know, the early 70s. Um, and, and of course, the psychoanalytic and developmental world long before that, right? And then you've got this parallel world really in the education uh, space with the behaviorist kind of uh, paralleling alongside and, and, and working towards and really um, taking over the market, so to speak. In, uh, in ABA, in, in discrete trial ABA. Well, now you've got the people who are doing more and more research. And by the way, the, the DIR research is relatively recent because we were all clinicians, right? We were all theorists. And only recently have we been able to do more research. And it's there. We've got a, a really nice annotated bibliography that Diane Cullinane and uh, Rick Solomon, and I always forget the third person, so please don't kill me, Sue forgetting her last name, uh, have written up um, that's on um, the websites, which Daria will, will put links to, dirfloortimecoc.com. Uh, it's also on my website. Um, annotated bibliographies that kind of have the, um, uh, the research uh, showing the evidence base for DIR and other, get this, developmental relationship-based interventions. It's sort of the broader term for DIR, for Merit, which is out of York University, for Play Project, which is Rick Solomon's version, and others like Green's Pact, 
which is out of uh, the UK. So there's a number of these uh, related kinds of uh, uh, interventions that we call developmental relationship-based. And um, as we've been doing that, the behaviorists, the research behaviorists, have been looking at these more naturalistic approaches and coming up with what they call naturalistic developmental behavioral interventions, which gave birth to um, uh, the, I guess, the will to have early start Denver model, which um, I think is more structured and more goal-oriented than um, Project Impact, uh, Project Impact and a couple others uh, in it. There's a new book actually coming out that is all about naturalistic developmental behavioral interventions. I did a blurb for the back cover because I really feel like these are people who are moving very much in the right direction. That's why I blogged on it, the right direction. Um, um, and, and what happened with our research is that in these, um, the research stuff got put into the new books, and so it's out there. You, know, you can buy these books on Amazon for 75 bucks, um, and there will be training as well. Um, and I'm oh. just showing a screenshot of uh, Dr. Fader's website where um, I have linked to his blog that he did on called The Right Direction about these two books. So that link will be in the blog post associated with this podcast at affectautism.com. Yeah, and so here's the thing. So, so the new book that's about the general field of naturalistic developmental behavioral interventions by Alvin Stamer and others is um, – is kind of like the the backstory for for this and for early start Denver model, and is chock full of research, none of which is DIR research, essentially none of it, which is a little bit disappointing from my end, but in some ways it's reifying because that field has moved towards us and is moving towards us. In you know, if you're at the tip of the spear for ABA, it's this, and it's moving towards our developmental approaches, and the kicker is that our research manual, the, the uh, Project Impact for Toddlers, Serena Weider read this and said, oh, it's a DIR manual. Because it is a DIR manual, especially because this is written for parents. It's the same kind of language we'd use with parents. <clears throat> the, um, book on, the books on this stuff uh, for clinicians and the, um, the book that Aubin Stamer and colleagues are putting out on the broader topic is written in ABA language. So basically... They're putting into ABA speak culture what we're doing on the developmental side, and it's kind of bringing these fields together, really bringing it towards our developmental work. It's very heartening. The other place where I see this is in the um, uh, move towards something called pairing in the ABA community, which you might have heard about. That's when they call it a non-contingent interaction with the child, i.e. play. And I was at a conference over the weekend. I was speaking to the Calif- no, the Chicago School of Professional Psychology, which was really confusing to me because I didn't have to go to Chicago. It was here in San Diego. I don't know how that works, but I didn't have to travel very far. Um, so I was, I was giving them you know, some talks on you know, autism, kind of the differences between developmental and behavioral approaches and things like that. And some people came to, to meet me there um, who weren't students. They were... Um, I guess, uh, graduates of the PsyD program there, uh, who were BCBAs. And um, what they were telling me about was how wonderful it is to do pairing and how frustrated they are with their younger colleagues who don't know how to play with kids. All they know how to do is discrete trial. So you've got basically the people who are now becoming the leaders in at least some of our local 
um, behavioral um, uh, organizations who are working with kids who want people to learn how to play. And I'm thinking, okay, this is where we need to be going. The biggest problem with this is the two problems. One is credit where credit is due. I really feel like Stanley and Serena made this the most clear and aren't getting the credit for it. And part of that is because, as you may know, if you're listening, if you're a BCBA, you've got to sign this like ethical thing that says you won't, you know, use anything that's not considered evidence-based. And by fiat, uh, developmental methods have not yet been accepted by the behavioral board. And so they're not considered evidence-based by them. Even though you, if you have a lawsuit, we had a class action lawsuit a few years ago, the judge was like, this is obviously evidence-based. Um, or if you ask the researchers who are doing the naturalistic stuff, they'll say it's evidence-based as well. But you don't have well, that. Well, it is kind of funny because ABA, the whole premise is based on a paper that is not evidence-based. And a lot of the, the um, methodology of ABA is, is based on something that was assumed to be evidence-based but was never replicated. So it, it's kind of a catch-22 there. <laughs> Well, I think, you know, what I will say is that um, because it's easy to do this kind of research, there are thousands of papers showing that you can train people to um, point to the right colored square, say certain words, look at you, um, that if you ignore people, you can extinguish behaviors. Um, So I I think there is an evidence base for training people to try to make them look more normal. I, I don't think there's any, I don't have any problem with the fact that you have science that shows that, not at all. Um, what I have a problem with are the side effects of the um, training, which is that if you train someone to comply, and a lot of it's compliance-based, well, then people will do whatever you tell them to do. And I may have even mentioned on this podcast we had a you know, lawsuit, well, a lawsuit, we had a, a, an attempted murder trial a year and a half ago in New Jersey where it's public information, where a woman was uh, basically accused of uh, trying to kill her grandmother well, this is somebody who had been basically taught to comply, was in an ABA program throughout her schooling, um, and learned that if someone, you know, oh, we're going to be with our friends. And she learned that if someone says they're your friend, they're your friend. Well, this is a woman who complied, was enslaved essentially by her grandmother, just working for grandmother and, and then doing a job outside the house, not allowed any real significant privileges of an adult, um, even though she could have functioned. Um, but she had been taught to comply, and her grandmother took advantage of that, unfortunately. She didn't like that her grandmother did that, and somebody came up and basically befriended her, telling her she was her friend, wanted to her to kill her grandmother so that she could move in and they could live happily ever after with her friend and uh, that friend's boyfriend. <laughs> um, and so this woman who um, you know had some you know ethical concerns, uh, nevertheless, you know gave her mother a little bit of uh, antifreeze, and what ensued was, the um, person who told her to do it got scared, called the police, and then left the state, uh, leaving my client uh, in jail for months after an interrogation where obviously, you can see on the video, she didn't understand her rights. She, you know, she was just a person who knew how to comply, basically. Um, and um, so, you know, here's a side effect where learning to comply means you do things that get you in trouble or you're vulnerable to abuse. Um, in other ways, there's a lot of other side effects too. If you learn to look at somebody in the eyes, you're weird. I mean, you stare at them. If you learn to go vroom, vroom with a car, you can't play creatively when everybody else plays creatively. So there's a lot of problems with uh, the approach that, that I have when it actually works. 
So it was just that um, goes to a point that I was going to bring up a lot earlier, which is where is this, um, where's the motivation coming from to move the behavioral methods towards the developmental approach? And I think a lot of that also comes from the self-advocates who have been very vocal about uh, not liking ABA and the horrible experiences they've had. And that's certainly not to say that every ABA approach has been horrible, but certainly there are a lot of cases where, like you said, uh, the children are taught to comply. Uh, kids are sitting at a table crying and screaming and being ignored because they have to follow a certain protocol. Many of this has happened in the past and caused post-traumatic stress disorder um, in some adult autistics. And so that's, there's, there's that extreme. There's everything in the middle, just like anything in life. And I think a lot of families have realized maybe ABA isn't working so well. And so they're starting to be more vocal about what they ask for. Certainly back in the early days, the only thing available was ABA. And like Dr. Greenspan and Weider say on that intro video, um, that, that was the best option at the time. But now we have these new insights from neuroscience and we know about individual differences and now we're starting to understand that these developmental approaches can generalize more. And so there's this push coming from all these different directions. And I agree with you that um, as much as we'd like pure DIR to be the norm, the fact that the behavioral methods are moving more towards the developmental approaches is absolutely the right direction. Yeah. And so I want to you know pick up on what you're saying about the uh, um, self-advocates because, you know, the, the wisdom of that position is that you can't take the autism out of the person without losing the person. And the premise of the behavioral approaches is to try to cure or take out the autism. Look, you know, by the time we are who we are, my son, my father, some people say me, I mean, we are who we are. Our brains have been formed in utero. Our experiences matter. um, And it makes a difference in terms of, our abilities to stay regulated and connected and social problem solve and all those kinds of things. But we are who we are. And to take that out of me or out of my son or out of my dad is like trying to, I don't know, um, change, uh, I don't know, there's controversies about like, um, you know, gender preference and things like that, trying to change that. Or, you know, maybe some people, you know, that's a hot button for them. Maybe I can think of a different example, but um, let's say you're born and identify with being like an American, like trying to take the American out of you, you know, something like that, or, or um, the, uh, the Catholic out of you. It, it, it's really um, the identity politics has been helpful in reifying that, you know, a person can be who they are as opposed to what we had had in, in, in mental health for a long time. We still have it is, um, an effort not to disparage people with diagnoses. So you might say, you know, here's Johnny, not here's a schizophrenic. Because if you say here's a schizophrenic, it sort of sets up a bias um, and a negative bias. Um, we have that problem with people with, you know, you call them Down syndrome, right? Well, we're tr- I, I'm trying to use only T21 because it's a genetic uh, description, but it doesn't really mean who you're going to be. If you are uh, like a healthcare professional and you're coaching parents who uh, have a child who has T21, you're saying, well, your child has Down syndrome. It immediately sets up all kinds of expectations and and maybe um, ideas about what the child won't be able to do and can curtail the opportunities that child has 
just because you don't have the expectations. And so in, in health and mental health, we've been working so hard to talk about person first, meaning, you know, this is Johnny. This isn't Down syndrome. This isn't a schizophrenic. This isn't uh, whatever, a borderline. If you talk about borderline personality, it's sort of so disparaging. Um, a person with. And yet you've got this other uh, very important, um, very real, um, well, it's a reality that uh, um, a lot of people will say, I'm an autistic. I'm, it's not, I'm a person with autism, right? I'm a diabetic. I'm, I, I'm autistic. You know, that's who I am. And uh, it's your job to um, work with me like anybody else with any other differences um, and accommodate. Um, and uh, it's not it's not my job to try to change who I who I am at my core to be you. And so, you know, how did this happen in the um, developmental world where, you know, behaviorism came uh, upon us? Well, it came, again, uh, the, the, uh, help, uh, the help of the education field is also one where you're training people to, to do things, quote, unquote, the right way. When you have to do that, if you're a fireman, you have to learn how to, the right way to carry people or use the hoses. If you're a military person, you have to know how to put your gun together with your eyes closed or whatever. Um, there's lots of things we have to learn um, uh, that are by rote. But if you only think of people from that rote point of view, um, you're going to lose the person. And in this case, you're going to lose, you know, the, their identity. But, you know, you also have parents. I mean, I was a parent, right? Um, and you, um, as parents, organizations like um, Autism Speaks is a good example. Maybe the Autism um, Society of America um, kind of grew up with parents who were really worried about their kids and wanting to change that. Cure Autism Now came out of that process. Um, defeat Autism Now. Um, well, you know, step back a little bit. Defeat autism? Cure autism? How about we learn how to um, work, learn about people, um, figure out, you know, the things that um, they uh, like doing, the things that are hard for them, and if there are things that are hard for them that they like to do or that are important for them to do, we help them to do that, as opposed to defeating or curing. Eh, doesn't make a lot of sense. It also, I think, drives a lot of the um, kind of one treatment cures. I mean, I love the DIR approach, um, and I think of it as a philosophy that leads me towards a lot of other things. But um, you'll see a lot of people who will say, well, you know, the reason is this, or the reason is that. Yeah, we're not there in terms of science. I mean, we do have some single gene reasons why people may look uh, or have the characteristics of somebody with autism, like, well, like I said, congenital rubella or tuberous sclerosis or, or, or some other kinds of things. But, um, but otherwise, I mean, we're talking about people. Um, they happen to share certain characteristics, um, and this isn't about curing or defeating their condition. It's not cancer. It's not even schizophrenia that way, although you know, schizophrenia kind of becomes part of who you are too, um, as does bipolar uh, disorder. It's not about curing or defeating those things. It's about, it's about um, living with a variety of different people in a way that we can live together in a meaningful and hopefully peaceful uh, existence. And, and appreciating the neurodiversity and, and the abilities and skills that they have that neurotypicals don't tend to have. Yeah, right. Exactly. So before we wrap up, I definitely want to get into how you see the structured component of DIR. 
But would you mind taking like 30 seconds or so to tell the viewers where your son is now? Because you said you started behaviorally and you went towards a developmental approach and you don't have to say anything personal, but just in general, your son, I believe, is grown a grown adult now. Yeah. So, um, uh, I, I put a blog up uh, a number of years ago when he graduated high school called Becoming More Matthew. At the time, his name's Michael, but at the time he was a minor, uh, or he wasn't a minor anymore because he left high school when he wasn't. But, uh, but some of the people I mentioned there, you know, his friends and stuff were. And so I changed everybody's name. But if you, if you, you can put that as a link too, because it's a really kind of fun DIR story because it's really a thank you card to all the people who helped him along the way. Um, but, you know, the early part of the story was people wanted to institutionalize him because he had regressed, he was biting himself. It, it was very not a good situation. Um, yada, 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 he's an engineer. Um, he's a good engineer. He's a smart engineer. Um, he's a really good guy. He can take care of himself. Um, he's currently an unemployed engineer because they had a reduction in force of his company. Uh, so he's looking for a job if anybody has one. Um, but, you know, he's just he's just a great guy. Is he on the spectrum, well, yeah. Um, he doesn't like to talk about it. He doesn't like to use that in interviews. Um, and it is to his disadvantage because he, um, uh, he, he's not, he's not the, the flashiest interviewer by a long shot. But if you give him like technical stuff, he just knows so much it becomes really obvious. Um, so, so that it's a challenge um, uh, getting, getting a new job for him sometimes. He doesn't have the reputation yet. Um, but, um, but, but he's doing really quite well. Thank you. You wanted to talk and, a little bit more I about, think, I think you credit that to using a developmental approach. I credit that to my wife <laughs> using a <laughs> developmental approach because she did the lion's share of the play with him and she wasn't really a player at first. Um, and that's, that's an issue, right? If you that's not your thing, it can be stressful to say, okay, you know, you're in the trenches now as Greenspan used to say. And you gotta, you gotta be doing this play. It's like, what? Um, but she did it. I mean, I did a lot of play too, but you know, she was kind of with him, you know, day in and day out. And we had some great therapists, Diane Lewis, Serena Weeder, Stanley Greenspan, um, and others. Um, he's had the same speech therapist working with him since he was a kid when we moved back to California and he was like six. Now he's 29. So 23 years with the same speech therapist, still kind of meeting every week. And, uh, obviously with different issues um, and doing well um, with problem solving and social communication. Um, but back to the structured stuff. So, so what does it mean to be structured? Um, you know, Stanley would sort of write a, uh, draw a circle of your day and have, you know, you should be rotating for every hour, 20 minutes of floor time, 20 minutes of the unstructured fun stuff activities and 20 minutes of semi-structured kinds of activities. So what does semi-structured mean to me? Honestly, that means um, uh, more floor time, um, but within that floor time, you might be a little bit more focused on the ideas and concepts that you're trying to um, uh, work with. And maybe um, you're spending that time on a, a meaningful project to the kids. So on the one hand, in your first 20 minutes, let's say if it was just floor time, it's whatever the kid wants to do. In the second 20 minutes, you might be moving towards something you're outside or, you know, kind of jumping around the jungle gym or chasing each other or something like that. That's, you know, kind of more motor based, sensory based. And then that third 20 minutes, maybe there's a favorite project, like you're building a robot and in building the robot, there's a lot of things you learn or using Legos. And there's a lot of ideas that you have. 
there's the prepositions and the colors and the shapes and <clears throat> there's a lot of math involved. Um, there's ethics because, you know, you could be having these creatures that are knocking each other's, ro you know, you know, fighting in Star Wars Legos or something. <clears throat> so all the things that might come up in floor time, but it, you're just a little bit more structured and you have in your head ahead of time the things that you're trying to learn within that so that it's just a little bit more focused. If you can get the teachers to be doing that, I have a, um, I think it's online, I have a, um, a graphic novella called Kim Tearful. Have you seen that? I don't know if you've seen Yes, that. yes. You had so, showed it to me a long time ago, yep. Yeah. Okay, so so part of that story, I'm, I'm sure it's online on my website. You can find the link. Um, it talks about um, the play, um, but also talks about how we incorporated, or in that story, uh, the team incorporated um, Kyle, the kid's favorite um, thing, which was a toothbrush, loved the toothbrushes, um, into academics, <laughs> you know, into play with other kids, into everything. But the idea is you're taking something meaningful. Um, so, you know, you might have somebody who is like, hey, into dinosaurs. Okay. So you can make your, um, things into dinosaurs for, for Michael, for my kid, he was very much a Lego kid in California. You study missions in fourth grade, the California mission system where you have the Catholic missions that helps structure, uh, um, a lot of how the state, you know, kind of developed after, uh, it came into, well, even before and after it, it was uh, part of the U S um, and uh, you have to build a mission. So well, Michael did his out of Legos, you know. So it was sort of a no-brainer. Um, and, uh, and it worked out really well. So, again. Well, I've recently heard of um, a couple of interesting things. I, one mother that I met whose son is really into elevators. And apparently there's a whole YouTube series of elevators and different makes and models. So you could say the same thing for roller coasters, trains. Um, and I also recently heard about an autistic kid whose thing is popes. He knows everything about every pope. So whatever it is that their specific interest is, you could develop semi-structured, uh, I guess you could say even curriculum for that 20 minutes around uh, getting to a goal. Is that what you would say? Yeah. I mean, when you think about elevators, there's all kinds of science that you can be at whatever level the child is. There's law and ethics you know, safety and all the, I mean, you can get a whole world out of an elevator if you mm -hmm. need to. You can get a whole world out of studying popes because they have all kinds of thoughts about um, science. They have all kinds of thoughts about literature. I mean, just it's, it's the, it's the starting point uh, from where you can, you can add things on back to the learning tree, right? Mm -hmm. You're developing the relationship with the child around the thing that interests them. And then you can branch out so that you can function in the world. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't mean that now we're doing Pope math today. I mean, it's not quite so cut and dried. You want to work, you know, within the, um, you know, the uh, just, just at the edge of the comfort level of the child. So you're, you're pressing that and thinking about those individual differences. I know we have to stop pretty soon. Any last thoughts that you have or questions? I guess um, if a parent has had experience uh, with their young child having ABA and they've recently heard about floor time and it really piques their interest and they think, you know, I, I really like this floor time. I think I want to work with it, but I, I really am concerned about my child who has a hard time focusing to learn their math and has a hard time um, stopping to do certain repetitive tasks because 
they might still be thinking in the ABA frame set of extinguishing behaviors or looking more normal. Um, what is a way to use that semi-structured approach to sort of turn them around to the more relationship-based ideas that will really help propel their children's development forward? Okay, that's not a short question. <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> um, but when you think about repetitive tasks or behaviors or things like that, that a lot of people want to somehow get rid of, what we do in a developmental world is instead of trying to get rid of them, we try a uh, way of feeling more comfortable in the world. Um, and, um, you know, actually, when you do this, it's pretty cool. Um, and you might want to do this if you're having trouble kind of connecting with people, you know, outside. So it kind of stands to reason that there's a reason for doing this. If you understand the reason, well, then maybe you can join and build on this. And then, you know, you're moving towards other things. And if you occasionally flap a little, so what? You know what I mean? Um, you have to almost move to uh, a different space. So th there, it's a very different approach than um, a, uh, you know, more uh, traditional, let's say, discrete trial approach. If you're having trouble focusing on math, I mean, the idea here is that the math gets embedded in what you're doing. The thing that you like to do, maybe it's not just this, but maybe it's playing with Legos, let's say. You embed the math into that so that you're not having to sit there and, and write problems, four plus four equals eight. Well, you've got it in front of you. It's the best manipulatives uh, in the world. If you want to read more about this and case studies about it, um, there's a book called Infancy and Early Childhood um, that has a whole bunch of really great case studies of small kids. There are some papers, including one that I wrote that's on the ICDL website uh, from the Journal of Development and Learning, I think, from like 2002, I think, um, that I wrote with Travis Bradbury on uh, working with a couple of different older kids um, and kind of folding in concepts, stuff like that. Um, there's a, there's a, a book by Ira Glavinsky uh, and Stan Greenspan on developmental approaches to uh, ADHD. And I think Ira also did one on mood disorders uh, as well. So there are books that you can go to. If you're looking for just, you know, how do I, how do, I do floor time? Uh, Andrea Davis, Dr. Andrea Davis has a great book on just practical everyday things you can do. If you're worried about, you know, how do you manage behaviors? Dr. Diane Cullinane has a great book on managing behaviors. Both of these books are pretty new in the past couple of years. And uh, Dr. Delahook's recent book as well. Yes, uh, Mona Delahook has a wonderful book too. So there's there's all kinds of really helpful books. They're very friendly in terms of reading them. They're not jargony. Um, and if you want to just learn floor time for free, you can go on the Perfectum Parent Toolbox, get lectures from the best in the business, and uh, download the handbook and learn it on your own. We're actually doing research on that at Fielding. Um, trying to see how people follow through on that because online learning, a lot of people don't follow through. So we're working on ways that we think will encourage people to uh, follow through. Because if you do, you'll learn a lot. It's free. And um, uh, our contention is that kids kids will do better. And let's not forget your coding app, which we did a, blog, a podcast about, which we still have to do a follow-up on that at some point as well. We but, should, uh, yeah. So Connection Coder is in the iTunes store, and basically it teaches you to look for the right stuff. How, how, what's the degree of connection you have with your child? How long is it lasting? Who's doing most of the work? And, you know, it, it, it'll, it'll train you to know what to look for 
you can use it in research and follow up. Um, yeah, connection coder is like awesome. I think I have the. Oh yeah, do you see it behind me? I've got the, the little connection coder thing right there. Yeah. I should. Yeah. I should. I should be a better. Um, uh, what you call it? A, a better spokesman for my own stuff. There, you go. <laughs> there it is. Ta-da! And there's there's the uh, the code. Great. Anyway. Yeah. Well, I think that if listeners, if you have any questions um, that are more specific about semi-structured approach and floor time, if you've looked at some of the resources and you have comments, questions, anything like that, please get a hold of me through the Affect Autism website on this blog post about this podcast. There will be a comment section below and also links to contact me or to do- contact Dr. Fader. So, um, if we get some more ideas or questions, we could certainly do a follow-up about that, and we'll definitely do a follow-up about the coding app as well. And um, let's just say that we're both very excited that the, the research world is moving more towards a developmental approach. Um, it may take a while for the behavioral stuff to be, um, you know, incorporated in and, and you know, looked at differently when, when uh, people realize how much the relationship base really helps propel our children forward in, in a more respectful, friendly, loving manner. Um, but the semi-structured approach can be in there right with it. So any last words? Thank you, Daria. I'm always grateful to uh, come uh, onto your podcast to work with you. I like watching your other ones, and um, I hope this has been useful to people. Thank you, and I appreciate you taking your time out of your super busy schedule because, as I mentioned, you have your hands in so many things, and thank you for all the work you do for all of our kids and adults. You're very welcome. Until next time, here's to affecting autism through play.